The book before us on today's morning show is titled Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. The book takes a look at the American Psychological Association, or the APA, essentially the largest organization for psychologists in the world, an organization uh, with which Roy Idelson, my morning show guest and the author of this book, was once a member. Uh, What led him to uh, feel profound disillusionment about the APA was its conduct uh, in the immediate wake of the terrorist attack on 9-11. As the Bush administration engaged in what was uh, a full frontal assault on terrorism, uh, seeking to bring those responsible for that tragedy to justice, uh, in a sense, rules were rewritten or broken, however one wants to, uh, to frame that. And uh, in the cause of, of going after terrorists and interrogating them in, uh, in, in ways unprecedented uh, in our history, there were psychologists who were engaged in that effort, whose expertise was brought to bear. And the APA, in, uh, in rather open fashion, at least to some extent, was uh, very much a partner in some of those efforts and playing a role, at least in some respects, counter to what the role of such uh, an organization would have been under normal circumstances. All of this and more is explored in uh, Roy J. Idelson's really fascinating book. He is a member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology and past president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility. And again, his book, published by McGill-Queens University Press, is called Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. Roy J. Idelson, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. This is a really powerful book, and uh, it is, I mean, the, the word disturbing shows up again and again, and, uh, and, and, and with good reason. Uh, let's talk for a moment, first of all, about the APA before it was engulfed in this particular, uh, in this particular story. Uh, you tell us that for, I think, more than a quarter century, you were, uh, you were a member of APA, as were many others, and in some respects, membership in the APA did not necessarily have much of an impact on your life. It's just something that you and other psychologists, most psychologists, just sort of dutifully did. Again, before the story of 9-11 and its aftermath comes along, just tell us a little bit more about how the APA has functioned in more normal times, so to speak. Sure. The, the APA, as you noted, the largest organization of psychologists, has over 100,000 members and a budget of over $100 million dollars a year. And what it is best at is promoting the profession of psychology. And that's why a lot of people join the APA. They're psychologists. They want their profession to thrive. They want their careers to do well. And the APA is a powerful force 
and the, in a sense, the leading voice of psychology in the United States. Hmm. So the leaders of the APA are looking for opportunities to either protect the work of psychologists or expand the work of psychologists right. to find and, new opportunities. Right, and, and, and the events of 9-11, in a sense, offered up uh, such an opportunity in a sense. We'll get to that in just a moment. I want to get some clarification from something you say in the book's introduction uh, when you talk about uh, it being, as we've just been talking about, uh, the, the largest organization of psychologists uh, in the world. And then you go on to say the APA is also important because it's part of the larger network of civil society organizations that contribute to a well-functioning democracy. Explain the most important ways in which, traditionally, the APA has served that kind of function. How have they uh, been a contributor to a well-functioning democracy? What the APA has done in many areas, there's one huge exception that we'll talk about, is promote democracy uh, through education, through using its voice, in the public sphere and with Congress. So, you know, areas such as uh, reproductive rights, uh, addressing climate change, uh, you know, racial justice, many areas, the APA has played a valuable role. And I think, you know, professional associations more generally and civil society organizations we give them we give them power, we give them privileges, we give them the public trust, and so we count on them in exchange. They're supposed to stand up for human rights, and they're supposed to oppose government misconduct. When they do that, we're much better off. If they fail in those responsibilities, the, the consequences can, can be dire because they are, in a sense, a bulwark in support of what our democracy should be. Mm. So you tell us in the introduction that for most of the 25 years that you were a member of APA, uh, you say your your membership, uh, like most members, was largely an inconsequential choice. It's just something you just just sort of do. Uh, You tell us that your level of, in, in a sense, interest in the APA and what it was doing changed uh, quite dramatically at the 2007 convention that was held in, in San Francisco. You were there to give a, a, a presentation about war propaganda. Uh, and I'm actually really interested to hear briefly about that, but it was at this convention that you uh, you encountered some others who really got you thinking about the APA in, in a different light. Tell us what happened in 2007. Well, for me, what happened in 2007 is, as, I, as you noted, I went to the convention. There's an annual convention, which could draw up to 20,000 members. Uh, And there were various presentations about what the APA was or was not doing in regard to the war on terror. And there was one, for me, especially memorable one uh, by 
Jean Maria Arrigo, who subsequently became a very close friend and colleague of mine. And what she explained was that she had been asked to participate in a task force that supposedly was going to figure out how the APA and psychologists should be involved in the war on terror. What she found out afterwards and what she has written about was that, in a sense, essentially, this task force was stacked from the outset, seemingly, with primarily military intelligence psychologists. And the APA came to the conclusion, claimed that psychologists have a valuable role to play in detention and interrogation operations and that it was ethical for psychologists to do this. And what Jean Maria Arrigo demonstrated is that, in a sense, it was all a fraud, that it was set up from the outset that this would be the conclusion that was reached. Typically, one would expect a task force to meet together to discuss to disagree, to come up with recommended solutions, and you don't know what that task force is going to conclude. That's how it should be. Instead, this seemingly was one that was staged in many ways. And when she explained that to, this was a task force in 2005, when she explained this to an audience of hundreds, and I was among them, it was quite simply eye-opening and incredibly demoralizing. Hmm. You, you, what, sorry, I just wanted to yeah. say, you in, in describing the impact of what she said, you said it had become clear to you and to at least some others that the APA had arguably lost its independent ethical compass. Right, absolutely. That was, they basically... From my point of view and that of many others, they turned over the profession's ethics to people like George Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld. What they wanted, the APA was going to support. And it obviously is not supposed to be that way. If you have the, a profession's ethics determined by the Pentagon and the CIA, something has gone terribly wrong. At this point in time, this is 2007, so roughly six years after the events of 9-11, did you at that point, I mean, coming to that convention already have any concerns, uh, or, or was this kind of a dramatic first revelation for you? I had, much earlier on, had concerns about the war on terror and what was being done in our name. I did not fully appreciate how significant the involvement of psychologists was. I knew that, uh, you know, there were media reports from as early as 2002 and ongoing. And we had the Abu Ghraib scandal in 2004. So there were all kinds of reports about abuse and torture. I didn't appreciate that psychologists 
were playing key roles. And that was what 2007 revealed to me. I had assumed, or naively in hindsight, that if anything, the APA was working to make sure psychologists were not part of this brutality. And then it it turned out that that just wasn't true. Right. You mentioned that at this 2007 convention of the APA, uh, you met two people uh, for the first time uh, who were leaders of, of a nonprofit called Psychologists for Social Responsibility. I mean, they came to your talk about war propaganda, and uh, ultimately you became uh, not only a part of this uh, organization, but I think uh, became its president. Uh, just explain briefly why such a nonprofit at that point existed, Psychologists for Social Responsibility. And had that group been formed in the wake of 9-11 and around any of these concerns or, or, or for some time had this group existed? And if so, why? For what purpose? Sure. So Psychologists for Responsibility was formed in the early 1980s, and its primary focus at that point in time was nuclear disarmament. That was kind of the effort, the the push that CISR, as we refer to it, uh, was focused on. Over the years, its areas of focus increased, and so by... You know, the post 9-11, it had many issues it tried to address. And one of them was torture, militarism, well, and the involvement of of psychologists. And it was, you know, it was a coincidence that, you know, these two uh, leading experts, Jancis Long and Tony Marcella, happened to come to my 8 a.m. talk. And, you know, that's sometimes things are fortuitous, and that led me in a very good direction. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Roy J. Idelson, and we're talking about his book, Doing Harm How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. The book examines some of the ways in which the APA, the American Psychological Association, became became very closely aligned with the Bush administration and its so-called war on terror uh, in the immediate aftermath uh, of of the events of 9/11 uh, in in the first chapter of your book you mention among other things uh, the location of the headquarters for the APA uh, right in the heart of Washington DC. And uh, I, I think you are taking the time to describe that to us uh, for a reason. I mean, it, 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 in a sense, points out uh, the potential for there to be, in a sense, the wrong kind of connections with the political hierarchy of, of, of Washington, D.C. But I suppose that location also suggests that, that the APA, at its best, could serve as sort of a watchdog for the political landscape surrounding it. For sure. It could go either way. And it has at times been a very good thing. Uh, You know, the APA has done some important lobbying and education efforts uh, to make our country better. 
but the close connection geographically to the Pentagon, the CIA, to the White House, to Congress, um, APA has always wanted a seat at the table within that community, especially, I think, the military intelligence seat at the table. And there's tremendous power there. And if you are appreciated by the right people, um, that's status, that's opportunity, that's potential funding for psychologists. And the APA really went after that. They were not alone. It was, you know, the war on terror was in part, in a sense, a feeding frenzy for various organizations to try and get some of the billions and billions and billions of dollars that was suddenly available to help protect the country. Right. So the APA was doing that as well. Mm. Yes, you write that following the terrorist attacks, the nation's mood of volatile combination of fear, anger, and urgency had quickly opened floodgates to enormous new funding opportunities. From the outset, the APA seemingly joined in the frenzy to win a share of the war on terror, counterterrorism pie for psychology. And as uh, somebody explained at the time, here was a chance to define new roles for psychologists. In other words, it might not be immediately apparent uh, to, to everybody involved in the dispersal of these funds that psychologists perhaps would have something valuable uh, to offer in this particular arena and in this particular situation. Um, I want to backtrack just a little bit in this same chapter uh, because uh, not only do you tell us about the APA, where it was located, but you describe its complex structure at one point saying 54 divisions and societies within the APA representing all the sub-disciplines that are part of this profession of psychology. I mean, that in and of itself is really intriguing. It, it, it reminds us that this is about a whole lot more than just Bob Newhart uh, talking to, to, to a strange person in his, in his office, but this is a vast and complex field. But then you go on uh, in talking about the mission of the APA to uh, talk about something found in the ethical principles of psychologists and code of conduct. And uh, this principle states, in part, psychologists strive to benefit those with whom they work and care, take care to do no harm. And, of course, that is part of what all of this is about, that you believe that what ensued in the wake of 9-11 was a perversion of this basic tenet that psychologists, among other things, they are trying to help people and, and, and are to take care to do no harm. Absolutely. And what was done, we certainly psychologists were involved in harming detainees. There's no, you know, that's no longer a debate. They were involved in waterboarding. They were involved in sleep deprivation. They were involved uh, in solitary confinement. They were uh, observing interrogations and giving advice about how to push further, how to uh, weaken any resistance. So they were 
definitely involved in that. The argument that's been offered, in a sense, on the other side is that in addition to do no harm, psychologists are supposed to benefit society. And military psychologists or some sub-community of them have insisted that military necessity meant that psychologists had to do what they did because that was how to benefit society, Mm. to keep us safe. Right. In my view, a very weak argument, uh, in part because it didn't keep us safe, and it did. And it's hard to argue that it benefited society uh, when you look at all the the negative effects of the war on terror. Right. It's interesting, and 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 I certainly share all of your concerns uh, for whatever that for whatever that's worth. it is interesting as as I read your book and I think back to those events, I do remember being very much myself on a personal level, taken up in that fear of what was going to come next, and uh, a new realization of our vulnerability, and uh, and and the zeal that was being demonstrated by those who were going to go after these terrorists and 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 any parties who harbored them. Uh, to quote President Bush, and 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 in a and I uh, now with the clarity of all these years later, I mean I I see that moment in time a little bit differently. But uh, it's probably important for us to say that it was maybe not natural and understandable uh, to be caught up in in all that was was going on, and probably a lot of us were operating from a position of fear. Uh, which in turn can can lead people to make some very bad decisions. That that's really well said, and I, I agree entirely. And the the Bush administration encouraged the fear. I mean, they they recognized that this would be to their advantage in pursuing whatever they chose to pursue. And there were, you know, two at least two false narratives that they spread very effectively. One of them was that these detainees were the worst of the worst. So there were hundreds, well, there were almost 800 detainees at Guantanamo at one point uh, or another, and there were hundreds and thousands more at other facilities. And the claim that these were the most vile people on earth was effective in encouraging that fear and also allowing abuses. What we now know and what we knew relatively early on was that that was simply not true. The vast majority of these people had no connection whatsoever to al-Qaeda or to international terrorism. They were, in some cases, farmers, in other cases, soldiers in Afghanistan. They were picked up many of them in exchange for bounty payments from the U.S. government, $5,000 to someone who would turn someone in as a suspected terrorist. So the worst on the worst of the worst promoted the fear. And then we, the other false narrative is we were ter- told that torture works, that torture saves lives. And none of that was true either. Mm. It doesn't work. 
Right. I'm, I'm glad you, you, you said what you did, and, and of course we'll explore all of this in more detail as we proceed, but it, it reminds me that there are, in a sense, two tightly related but different questions here. One of them is, uh, under any circumstances, is it permissible to engage in these tactics? I mean, if the survival of the planet were hanging in the balance, is one justified to do whatever you can to extract information that is in- incredibly important to to get? I mean, to, are there lines that we, under those circumstances, can cross? I mean, that's one question you know, that, that could be argued. But the other question is, what happens when we engage in su- such tactics and the person on whom we're inflicting those tactics has no information to share. I mean, is in a sense somebody who is innocent of all wrongdoing and and is being needlessly subjected to such tactics. And and of course I think when it comes to that, uh the objections are 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 very, very clear and, and inescapable. Although I suppose there are certain certain people who would still say I mean, in, in the, the, the rush to do something, I mean, mistakes will be made. Or, I mean, there are all kinds of ways to perhaps try to justify or defend that. But it's, it's an interesting distinction, I think, between the, 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 the two questions that I just raised. Uh, I agree. The, you know, it, the question of is it moral, and I would say absolutely not when we're talking about torture, um, fades a bit when we realize it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, then there's no reason to use it anyway. And right. what the way torture, what torture is good for is getting a false confession. If someone is being tortured, is suffering extreme physical or psychological harm and pain, they will try to say whatever they think you want them to. They won't necessarily know what it is, but they will guess. And if they can tell that what you want is for them to confess to having done something, they'll in all likelihood confess. That false confession is of no use in terms of protecting the country. It does nothing for that purpose. It does make it look as though we have actually caught someone who has done something terrible. But the other problem with is torture ever okay is, and there's, you know, what people refer to as the ticking time bomb scenario. You know, what if someone, you know, there's a a bomb that's going to go off in New York City and this person can tell you where it is and can do it in time for you to find it and make sure it doesn't happen. All those links, all those things that have to be true, essentially never are in real life. And we don't have examples of the ticking time bomb having led, torture having led to uh, saving lives. We have shows like 24, where Jack Bauer, you know, a government agent would do such things miraculously, you know, one hour after the next. But in real life, we don't. And the, in order to use 
what I think people often overlook is that torture, it's not an incident. It's a, it's a process. It's a practice that a society either accepts or doesn't. Because if we're going to use torture, that means we are also going to train torturers. They are going to, you know, go to school in order to learn how to torture. We are going to uh, develop an infrastructure. We're going to have physicians on hand to make sure that the person who's being tortured does not fall into such a state of illness or harm that they can't continue to be tortured. So we're going to bring in all kinds of, of professions and that sounds, and I believe it is, an awful place for society to go. Right. And it resets us into a new normal uh, that, uh, Absolutely. That, uh, that any civilized person should, should be very, very alarmed about. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Roy J. Idelson about his book, Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. In the immediate wake of 9-11, do we know who was reaching out to whom first? That is, was the Bush administration reaching out to the APA, or was the APA reaching out to the Bush administration? And maybe the answer to that question is is maybe inconsequential. I mean, who who picked up the phone and called whom? Uh, and was there already such a close connection between the APA and the, the American government that that such exchanges were happening in a sense all the time, but obviously in a different way, uh, given what happened on nine eleven. Well, there there were certainly pre-existing connections. I mean, the APA um, would ensure that it had contacts with influential people and organizations in Washington and elsewhere, but. It seems clear from the APA's own statements that the APA reached out to the Bush administration, reached out to the CIA, essentially saying, how can we help? What can psychology do to assist in counterterrorism, in the war on terror? And we know, you know, kind of sadly that the one of the things the APA did in 2003 was to establish a different task force. This one was assigned to look at what the effects of the war on terror could be on the American public. And what this task force did was, to some extent, there was they raised the concern that what the U.S. government does in pursuing the war on terror could do more harm than what the terrorists had done. And when that became part of the task force, the task force's conclusions, the APA leadership wanted seemingly wanted nothing to do with that. They were concerned about their public image. They were concerned about their relationship with the White House. And that task force report was never published mm. by the APA. 
you uh, you tell us that in December of 2001, so of course that's just several months after 9-11, you tell us the APA Board of Directors employed its rarely used emergency powers to approve an official resolution on on terrorism. And then you go on to explain how, uh, in terms of the APA's code of ethical standards, that the language was altered. And altered in ways that, you know, for a civilian glancing at it would not seem to be all that, that significant. But, but uh, especially given the context, uh, it's, it's clear that the APA, in a sense, wanted to uh, loosen what had been very tight ethical restrictions on its activity. There, was, there is an ethical standard. It's 1.02 in the ethics code for psychologists. And it had actually been modified before 9-11, but was then approved afterwards when there was, in my view, good reason to see that there was a problem. And, And the change that was made was basically to say that if there's a conflict between the profession's ethics and what the government or the agency that one is working for has a different view that a psychologist was free to follow the orders they were given, even if it meant violating the ethics code. So it was kind of a a Nuremberg-type loophole that following orders became an excuse for abuse. And it would have been better it didn't happen if the APA's governing body, when it approved this in two thousand, this change in 2002, if it had paused and thought, well, wait a minute, there are already these reports of abuse and torture going on by U.S. personnel. Maybe we don't want to say that psychologists can follow orders, but they didn't go that direction. They approved the change, and, you know, bad things followed. Right. Uh, at one point, you say the, 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 the efforts of the APA uh, was that uh, they wanted to be viewed by the Bush administration, and for that matter, probably by the general public, as a valued patriotic partner in the military and intelligence operations central to the new war on terrorism. And later in the same chapter, you say there was little expression of concern about whether psychologists would be expected to discard the profession's fundamental ethical principles in order to support activities geared towards safeguarding the nation's security. We, of course, at this point in time, already knew a whole lot about these kind of practices. That is, uh, I forget if it's enhanced or elevated interrogation, but interrogation practices uh, that would violate uh, various uh, codes of conduct. Uh, Was there something new, and if so, what was it that psychologists were bringing to the table uh, in the fall of 2001 and in the spring of 2002 at this point in time? I mean, what in what way did the expertise of psychologists need to be uh, accessed and utilized and taken advantage of? Sure. Well, 
it's not entirely clear that the psychologists that became involved in supporting abuse in one way or another were actually experts anyway. But what the way it started was in the months immediately after 9-11, two psychologists in particular accepted a contract from the Central Intelligence Agency to, in a sense, be in charge of their interrogation operations at what were called CIA black sites, places around the world where at the time we didn't know where they were. And these two psychologists developed what was called an enhanced interrogation program that was supposedly going to help obtain information that could not be obtained in any other way. And this is where we got get into the waterboarding, which is essentially drowning, um, putting people in kind of coffin-sized boxes for many hours at a time, uh, all kinds of other kind of abusive techniques that were used on them, sexual humiliation of various sorts. And the two psychologists claimed that this would ultimately provide the information that was needed to keep us safe. There's no evidence it did. And yet these same techniques then moved from CIA black sites to Guantanamo Bay and other facilities where psychologists uh, in CIA, CIA black sites, two psychologists actually conducted the interrogations. They were doing the waterboarding. At Guantanamo, psychologists were providing advice and guidance on how to get information. So it was a slightly different role, but there was abuse and torture throughout. Wherever we had detainees, they were being mistreated. Right. And and in a sense, willing psychologists were being utilized to advise in terms of doing this will make this even more unpleasant. Uh, doing this will make this isolation even more effective or whatever the particular tactic at the moment uh, happened to be. But I think you tell us something else uh, in the chapter called The Perversion of a Profession when uh, you, you say this, in its effort to ensure that this brutal treatment could be defended as somehow reasonable and appropriate, the Bush White House specifically turned to psychologists to assist with the charade. Explain what kind of charade we are talking about and the way in which uh, certain psychologists were, were accomplices, willing accomplices in this so-called charade. Right. So what happened in 2002, so just months after the 9-11 attacks, the Bush administration's Office of Legal Counsel issued some, at that time, classified memos. Some of them ended up being called torture memos. And what they did, as the clearest example of what I, what I mean there, is one of them said that whenever the waterboard is used, the psychologist must be present. And the claim was, since psychologists have a do-no-harm ethic, 
If a psychologist is in the room, it means that detainee will not be harmed by the water board because a psychologist would never let that happen. That was the charade. That was the way in which, you know, fundamentally health professional psychologists were necessary for the plan that the, the Bush administration put together. If the APA, if psychologists had refused, if the APA had stood strong and spoke loud against that use of psychologists, the Bush administration may have had to develop, a, they would have had to develop a different rationale. They might have succeeded, but this claim in the basic documents that psychologists will be present and will keep detainees safe was a lie. Mm. And there's no simpler way to describe it. It was a lie. Mm. We've already touched on the fact that uh, when the APA put together a task force in 2005 uh, to supposedly examine uh, some of these uh, concerns, it was very much a stacked deck with, in a sense, predetermined conclusions already made. It was not an an honest examination uh, whatsoever, and you devote a whole chapter to that. it's in the fourth chapter of the book called Revelations and Resistance that you begin to outline uh, some of the first concerted efforts to really uh, sound the alarm and, 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 to, and to raise concerns. And this is from within the psychological uh, community. Um, in a nutshell, because we're, we're very, very soon out of time here, uh, how how would you chart those those efforts and and at what cost were were certain psychologists speaking up in opposition to what was happening at the APA? Sure. What what emerged right after that task force in two thousand and five was the first organized efforts by what became known as dissident psychologists. I am among them, and we were known that way because we descended from what the APA's policies were, the APA's accommodation to what the Pentagon and the CIA wanted. We met all kinds of resistance. Uh, It included stonewalling. The APA has often used the strategy of let's not respond and maybe it will go away. It didn't happen in this case. We were called, you know, all kinds of less than pleasant things. There was a an APA past president who referred to us as opportunistic commentators masquerading as scholars. There was another past president who seemingly compared us to the dementors from the world of Harry Potter. I didn't know what who the dementors were. When I looked it up, I discovered they're frightening cloaked figures who feed on human happiness. So we got this was not unusual. We got all kinds of efforts to discredit us. One of our members had an ethics complaint filed against him with the claim that he, you need to understand military culture in order to criticize. He doesn't have a background in military culture. Therefore, his criticisms are unethical. We have another member 
who was subject to a defamation lawsuit, which has been dropped. But uh, these can wreck people's lives. You know, I mean, if you're uh, for years wondering, well, what is the outcome of this lawsuit going to be? Or if there's an ethics complaint and you're wondering, will I be able to remain a practicing psychologist? These are serious things. And the efforts were essentially nonstop against us. We, we made real progress. We achieved change in 2015. But now I fear the signs point to things slipping back downhill as those who want to turn back the clock, you know, make advances. Your book uh, at one point talks about uh, the emergence of something called adversarial operational psychology, which you tell us uh, is, is, in a sense, a fundamental contradiction of what psychology is supposed to be, because in this adversarial operational psychology, individuals are targeted for harm rather than for care. This remains right. a real this remains a real threat. It remains a real threat, and I would say it is a growing threat because this group of psychologists with support from the military and intelligence community are pushing to be more broadly accepted by the APA. And what they do, they're not clinical. They may have a background in clinical psychology and kind of psychotherapy and so on, but that's not their role. Their role is designed to advance national security and national defense. And they will do engage in operations where people are intentionally harmed, where there's no informed consent, and these operations are often covert. So there's not even an easy possibility of the ethics world, you know, kind of the APA or state licensing boards investigating and holding them to the profession's ethics. But they are making progress. When I say things are sliding backwards, you know, they recently succeeded in getting the APA governing body to approve a set of practice guidelines for operational psychology that this happened just a month ago. And these guidelines, in my view, are hugely problematic. They hardly even mention the history of abuse and torture that psychologists were involved in. They don't mention the restriction that psychologists cannot be present at Guantanamo and similar places. So it's worrisome. Your book again is Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. Published by McGill Queens University Press, the author Roy J. Idelson. Uh, Roy J. Idelson, thank you so much for writing this really important book, and thank you for being my morning show to guest uh, today. I was privileged to speak with you. Thanks so much, Greg. It's, it's been a real opportunity. Much appreciated.